The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. The scripture for today is Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. If you are reading from the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 848. When you're ready, please stand for the reading of God's word. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. Well, here we are at the beginning of Mark chapter 12. It was only a couple weeks ago that we were in Mark 11, 1 through 11. And now we find ourselves in Mark 12, 1 through 12. And uh, what we're going to find this morning, um, as verse 1 says, is Jesus speaking to some people in a parable. And those people specifically are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders that Jesus, um, what we saw last week, is engaging with right now. The very people who are challenging him on his kingly authority. And as we work our way through this parable, um, we're going to see that it's a parable that is gracious in its purpose, while at the same time, devastating in its truth Uh, because what we have before us is a parable of judgment jesus has different kinds of parables depending on the situation that he's teaching in sometimes jesus gives parables about the kingdom sometimes he gives parables um, about how the kingdom will grow how christian life works how we are to be saved parables about salvation but there's a category in the gospels that revolve around this idea of Judgment, And that's exactly what we have before us this morning. And what we're going to see is that as Jesus is going to drive home the truths that he exposed us to last week concerning who he is as the king of authority, he's going to take this parable of judgment and expose us to two further truths, namely the kindness and severity of God the kindness, and the severity of God. And so those are two attributes of God. Kindness, one that we typically have no problems with. But when you begin to talk about the God who is severe, the God who judges, 
There's that thing deep down inside of us that can tend to bristle up or we go, not my God. But what we need to have is not an image of God crafted to our own liking. We need an image, a right understanding of who God is crafted according to the word. And today Jesus is most definitely going to expose us to not only the kindness of God, but the attribute of God, the severity of God, the God who will judge. And so we need the Holy Spirit this morning. My aim isn't to be up here to be a fire brimstone guy and just scream and yell and get, you know, veiny necked and red faced. Ah, that's a very and scream like, that's not the point this morning, but what we are going to do this morning is submit ourselves to the word as we view God rightly and seek to understand and grow and mature in our understanding of him, which is why we need the Holy Spirit and which is why we're going to pray right now for that. So join me. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to sharpen, to tune, to open our eyes so that we can see God clearly in the scriptures this morning and then we'll unpack this parable, okay? Father, you are the creator. And as the creator, that means you have the right to do with us as you see fit because we are your creation. And so our prayer this morning is this, have your way with us this morning. Exercise your divine right as the creator. Have your way in us this morning. Expose sin in our hearts this morning. Magnify how incredibly weak and dependent we are. How much we need you. Stir our hearts this morning, God. Fill with the Holy Spirit so that as we seek to wrestle with the Scriptures before us, we would be wowed by the good news of the God who sent His Son in the patient pursuit of sinners. Revive us with the gospel of the cross this morning that Jesus is the son who received the full severity of God's wrath for our sin. Holy Spirit, set me aside. Put your message in my mouth. Help us to see. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, if you go into the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 22, what you find is the Apostle Paul calls us to take note of two things, to take note of both the kindness and the severity of God. You see, God is the pinnacle of kindness. Kindness is one of the many attributes that magnify the holiness of our God. But far too often we glance over another attribute that magnifies the holiness of God, and it's that attribute of God's severity. You see, if we're going to mature in our understanding of who God is according to God's word, then we must see that God is both kind and severe, which is why we turn our attention to this parable of judgment this morning taught by Jesus. 
Because as Jesus begins to unpack how God the Father has dealt with his people, on the surface, when you just read this parable, I mean, that's really what this is. Jesus, in first century A.D., talking to Jewish, Jewish religious leaders in the temple of God and how, because of their failure to do what they were crafted to do, go back to the whole fig tree sort of thing, they haven't been bearing the fruit that they were supposed to be bearing, Jesus is going to look at them and say, guys, it's going to go really bad for you if you continue in this path of resisting and rejecting the Father. I mean, on the surface, that's just what Jesus is doing. He's unpacking for them how the people of God, specifically these religious leaders and all the religious leaders before them, have consistently and habitually dealt with the prophets of God sent to God's people. But as we sit here and realize and dwell and chew on these words, what we're going to quickly learn is that this parable isn't just for first century Jewish religious leaders. It's for me and you who have to go to work tomorrow morning in Springfield, Illinois. See, God is going to expose to us something. The Son is going to teach us this morning through this parable about the kindness of God in His pursuit of sinners and the severity of God for those who ultimately reject His Son. And so Jesus, as we turn our attention to this parable, the first thing He's going to do is unpack for us the kindness of God. That's what we're going to see in verses 1 through 8, the kindness of God. If you remember, Jesus has recently displayed his kingly authority through his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That was, Rome, or that was Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And then Jesus did the whole thing with the fig tree, but in between the fig tree experience, remember, Jesus went into the temple and he exercised his priestly authority in the cleansing of the temple. And it was specifically this exercise of authority that stokes and fuels the disdain and the hatred of the religious leaders to where last week we saw these religious leaders, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, they go right to Jesus and they begin to challenge Jesus on his credentials. They want to know, Jesus, who on earth gave you the right to come into our house and to do this on our turf? They don't want the authority of Jesus in their life. They ask, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Only for Jesus to answer their question to him with a question of his own that simply undoes these religious leaders, trapping them to the point where they just simply refuse to answer Jesus. So now that the questioning is done between these religious leaders, Jesus is going to go on the offense and he's going to drive home some truths of God by teaching a parable that is going to actually expose even further the hardened hearts of these chief priests, these scribes, these elders that were just challenging him on his authority. So the end of Mark 11, there's not a hard break into Mark 12. This experience is meant to be wedded together, okay? And so when you start in verse 1 of Mark 12, we find Mark writing this, that Jesus begins to speak to these people, to them. The them here are chief priests, scribes, and elders. And he begins to say this parable, that a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around this vineyard. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, and he leased it to tenants 
and went into another country. Jesus begins this parable by painting a picture that would have been very, very familiar to his audience. Because in Jesus' day, it was common practice for wealthy landowners to hire out tenant farmers to come and farm land to manage things like vineyards. And so the idea would be that this landowner wouldn't be able to work the land on his own, so he hires out these tenant farmers to come and work for the land and care for the land with the aim that they would come and do their job in such a way to where they would be able to produce fruit so that when it came time to reap this fruit, the owner could come back and go, tenants, you've done exactly what you're supposed to do. You have worked hard. You have fulfilled your purpose. You have bore fruit, and I am here to reap this fruit. And so what Jesus does is he uses this common agricultural truth to grab the attention of these religious leaders who would have totally had a category for the beginning aspects of this parable. But Jesus further grabs their attention with another familiar thought as he marries this understanding of like common agricultural tenant farming practices around Jerusalem with what they would know to be true from the Bible. Because you see, as Jesus lays out these foundational elements in his parable, specifically there in verse 1, what Jesus is doing is he's doing what he so often does. He dips back into the Old Testament. He grabs imagery out of the Old Testament, and he pulls it forward, and he puts it right into the face of his listeners. And Jesus is doing this in verse 1 of Mark 12 as he's dipping back into Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, pulling out imagery from Isaiah 5 where the prophet Isaiah is singing this song, a song that's known as the Song of the Vineyard. And in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, once you get through all this language that Jesus is using that he's pulling right from Isaiah about this man planting a vineyard, putting a fence, digging a pit, building a tower, leasing it, all this kind of stuff, you get down into Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, where this song sort of pulls to a, a bit of a pause, a bit of a close, and what you have in the song of the vineyard, it clearly says this in verse 7, Isaiah 5, that the vineyard of the Lord is the house of of Israel. And so in other words, upon hearing Jesus begin to unravel this parable before these people, and they hear Jesus talking about this thing called a vineyard, the audience would know that the vineyard in this parable was more than just some random grove of grape vines. They would know that there is something more going on behind it. They would know that in this parable, the vineyard was the people of God. The vineyard was meant to represent Israel. In Isaiah chapter 5, this owner of the vineyard, the person who's planting it, was clearly labeled in Isaiah 5 as the Lord. So as we view this parable of Jesus through the lens of Isaiah chapter 5, we quickly begin to learn that the vineyard is meant to be seen as Israel, and we also learn that the owner of the vineyard is meant to be seen as God the Father himself. But the problem is revealed when Jesus continues in his parable telling us that certain tenant farmers who were meant to care for the vineyard and work the ground in such a way so as to bear fruit for the owner, they actually fail to produce fruit for the owner. Jesus says that when the season came, the owner sent a servant to the tenants. 
because he wanted to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Notice in verse 3 that these tenants took this first servant and instead of giving this servant the harvest of the grapes, they actually give this servant a beating. Then they send him away empty-handed. Verse 4, but again, the owner sends to these tenant farmers another servant. And they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And then, verse 5, the owner sends yet another servant. But this one they actually kill. And Jesus says, so it was with many others, as the owner kept sending people to them, some they would beat, and some they killed. And so as the parable continues on, the religious leaders are not stupid. They quickly put two and two together. Because Mark tells us over in verse 12 that they very rapidly perceived Jesus was telling this parable about them. Because in the parable, the tenant farmers are actually the religious leaders from whom spiritual fruit was expected, and the faithful servants of the vineyard owner represent the faithful prophets that God the Father was repeatedly sending to his vineyard, the people of God, his nation, Israel. So in the parable, when the servants show up on behalf of the vineyard owner, only to be received with beatings and murder, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, know that Jesus is referring to the way that they, the religious leaders, and the religious leaders before them have continually and repeatedly treated God's servants, the prophets, in a way that was receiving them not with repentant hearts, but receiving them with blows, with mocking, with jeering, with murder. You go into Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and there the writer reminds us that long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But all you got to do is jump over into Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 through 38, and what you find is the record of the kind of reception that these prophets received from God's people. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, the writer says. Some were stoned, some were sawn in two. Some were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. It was these faithful servants who went about wandering in deserts, wandering in mountains, wandering in dens, wandering in the caves of the earth. You go into 1 Kings 19, and what you see is that Elijah was not received by the monarchy of Israel. He was driven out into the wilderness. It's according to tradition that Isaiah the prophet, the Isaiah name that gave us the book of Isaiah, he was actually murdered by being sawn in two. 
You go into Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah the prophet was beaten and put in stocks. You go into 2 Chronicles 24. Zechariah the prophet so stoked the hatred of the people with his prophetic God-centered preaching that we learned that he was actually stoned next to the altar in the very temple. And it's just a few chapters ago that John the Baptist, the prophetic forerunner to Jesus, was beheaded while the religious leaders happily stood by watching it happen. And it was this stubborn refusal to receive God's servants which ultimately prompts Jesus to lament Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. See, listen, whenever you step back and you just begin to look at the way that this vineyard owner repeatedly sent these servants to these religious leaders, to these tenants, what you're meant to step back and see is that God, God is patient in his pursuit of sinners. God is unfathomably, unimaginably patient in his pursuit of sinners. You go into, you see it all throughout the Old Testament. You go into the book of Judges. What happens? The people of God mess up. God sends a judge, someone to come and teach the word of God. They repent only to turn around and find themselves in the back of the same place. God sends another judge, another prophet. The people repent and then they find themselves right back into the place of sin. And it's just that cycle of over and over for years and years and centuries and centuries and centuries. And what God is doing, he's sending, repeatedly sending these prophets because what we see in the sending of these prophets is that it is the one of many examples of God's patient pursuit, his patient pursuit of sinners. It's because it was the prophets sent to God's people that were the manifest evidence of God's kindness that was meant to lead these people to repentance. God wasn't repeatedly sending these servants for the sake of just sending servants because he has a low value of life and he likes seeing people getting beat up Stoned, sawn into, murdered, and driven into the wilderness. God was sending these prophets because, again, the prophets were God's kindness that was meant to lead his people to repentance. But notice that the kindness of God didn't stop with just the sending of prophets. His kindness continued and found its fullest expression in the sending of his son. Notice how Jesus continues the parable in verse 6. The owner of the vineyard realizes, hey, I've still got someone else I can actually send to this vineyard. And the owner of the vineyard says, this one I can send is my beloved son. Saying, surely if I send my beloved son, they will respect him. But Jesus says those tenants actually upon hearing that the owner is sending his son look at one another and begin to craft murder in their heart. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and then they threw him out of the vineyard, Jesus says. 
So as Jesus continues the parable, he tells us that the patient pursuit of the vineyard owner did not stop with the mere sending of his servants, the prophets. His patient pursuit actually leads him to send his beloved son. And when we read this little phrase, the owner sending his beloved son, we are meant to have no doubt in our minds that the beloved son of the vineyard owner is none other than Jesus, the beloved son of God. The phrase, beloved son, rings with the announcement of Jesus' baptism from Mark chapter 1, verse 11, where God the Father speaks, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It's meant to ring the declaration of the transfiguration, where again, God the Father speaks, saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So when you and I see this picture of God sending his beloved son, we are meant to see once again the magnificent, unimaginable, unfathomable kindness of God in his patient pursuit of sinners. You see, God pursues sinners. In the words of the poet Francis Thompson, God is the hound of heaven who is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9. God's great patience has been extended to us through his son, but the reality is just like the religious leaders, and we see it in all the world around us today, is that rebellious Sinners still continue to resist this pursuit. Yet in the face of humanity's refusal to receive his love, God has persisted. And the Apostle John tells us to the, when he tells us that he has pursued us to the point of so loving the world that he gave his only son, it's possible in the Greek to also say sending his beloved son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, this is the kindness of God. This is the kindness of God, the patient pursuit of sinners who can now be reconciled to God the Father through the death of his son. And so my mind, when I'm thinking on these things in this past week, my mind goes to a place like Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where the Apostle Paul challenges his readers with the patient kindness of God by posing this question where he says, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness? Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness? Do you presume on the riches of his forbearance? Do you presume on the riches of his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, I read this verse and it just makes me wonder, has God's patient kindness to you seen in the sending of his son brought you to the place of repentance? Has God's patient kindness to you, seen in the sending of his son, brought you to repentance? Because again, the patient kindness of God has a purpose. That's what Paul is saying. It's not so you and I can continue in sin, which is what we tend to sort of drift to. 
right? We've all seen it with little children. Mommy and daddy say, don't do a certain thing. And then they do that certain thing, and then they don't get caught. What's that little kid doing? That little kid isn't going, man, mom's, mom and dad are so patient. I will never do that again. If you have those children, please come. <laughs> oh, man. Because what happens is they do that thing they're not supposed to do, and what do they begin to think? They begin to think what you began to think when you did that as a little kid. I didn't get caught. This whole patient thing, maybe I can do it again and get away with it. And then do it again and get away with it. And then do it again and get away with it. Not knowing that the patience of mom and dad isn't condoning your behavior of disobedience. The patience of mom and dad is meant to lead you to repentance. And we can do that so often in our own lives. Where we clearly know what the word of God says. We clearly know what is required of us according to the scriptures. We know how the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to guide us, shape us, mold us, fuel us, inform us in our head, in our heart, in our emotions, in our hands, the way we live in this world. And yet what happens is there's those moments when we just look at it and go, you know what, like I'm not quite sure I want to do it. And then you do it and then like you don't, you, like there's no like divine lightning bolt from heaven in that moment of disobedience. You begin to go, maybe it wasn't that bad. And so then you go, maybe I can do it again and get away with it. And maybe I can do it again and get away with it. And maybe I can do it again and get away with it. And God said sin deserves death, and I haven't died in this sin, so maybe it's not as big as a deal as God is saying that it is. And what we begin to do is tread on the kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. It's not so you and I can continue to sin, and rather it's so you and I can be so overwhelmed by the Father's long-suffering grace I'm thankful for the long-suffering grace of the Father. Your pastor sins. I'm thankful that he is long-suffering in grace towards me as the Father. Bring us to the place where we would repent of our sins and then run to the beloved Son and embrace him by faith. So again, I ask you, has God's kindness led you to repentance? There's a spiritual aspect of that, of coming to him in faith for the first time in salvation, being awakened to those realities like I have sinned against God and I need salvation in him, forgiveness from him. And we have that first aha moment of, wow, he has been overly long-suffering in grace towards me and that we come to him in that initial moment of salvation, but it's for every one of us also here this morning who are walking in faith, by faith in Christ. So that when we walk out of these doors and begin to walk through next week, we begin to go, you know what? God has been overly kind to me this week. Holy Spirit, help me not to tread on the patience of the Father and to treat his patience as a ticket to do whatever the heck I want to do. But Father, help me. 
to see your long-suffering grace and then be fueled by grace to go and walk in such a way where your patience leads me to walk in repentance. So that's the kindness of God. But notice that as Jesus rounds the corner into verses 9 through 12, he shifts us to the severity of God. The severity of God. You see, Jesus turns to this attribute of God. Let me just insert this here. It feels like a dissonance, doesn't it? For me just to say, God is patient to sinners. He's long-suffering in grace. Severity of God. Right, if you guys aren't feeling this dissonance, then I'm not doing my job. Because right now, what you should be feeling is how in the world does the kindness of God mesh with the severity of God? How do those two worlds exist? And I think they exist like this because as Jesus rolls from the patience of God into the realities of the severity of God, Jesus turns to this attribute of God because one of the kindest things that he can actually do right now is warn the religious leaders of the severity of God. You see, in this moment when Jesus is going to tell them that destruction comes for those who solidify their rejection against God, the things you hold dear are about to be stripped from you, Jesus isn't being vindictive in this moment. Jesus is not being malevolent. He's not being malicious. Jesus is actually doing what love does. He is warning of the judgment to come because he knows that God will judge those who ultimately reject his son. So you see, there comes a point in time in our relationships, and I don't have the formula for it when, when you do, when after the sharing of the gospel and the sharing of the gospel, maybe over years and years and years, and there's just that clear moment where it's like, man, like, I don't know why this is the moment, but it's just obvious that the Holy Spirit is saying this moment where I need to go to that friend, I need to go to that neighbor, and the most loving thing I can do right now is just lay out for them the realities of the judgment to come for those who ultimately reject the Son. To where we have to come and verbally articulate this. Because it's unloving to let this person assume that there is no major consequences for ultimately rejecting the Son. Now, I'm not saying you lead off the bat with that. Like you get hired on maybe that Chick-fil-A and you meet the guy behind the cashier and you're working next to you and you're like, bro, you're going to hell. It's like, uh, I don't know, is that true? It is, but like, do you lead off with that? I don't know, like Jesus sort of shows us like at this stage in the game in Mark chapter 12, verse 9, Jesus has had three years of patient, pursuing interaction, of wooing these people, displaying his authority, showering them with the gracious interaction of the word of God incarnate, but there just eventually comes to that point, it came to the point in Jesus' life where he's like, guys, you gotta know something. If you continue... And the resistance towards me solidifies, concretizes into hard-hearted rejection. Judgment will come. And Jesus isn't saying that because he's motivated by hate. Jesus is saying that because he's motivated by the patient, loving kindness. And so Jesus drives this point home in the parable by asking this question. And I mean, it is the 
doozy of a question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? I mean, it's just a flat-out invitation for those who are not as an audience to invite them into the parable. What's that owner going to do? And he tells us that he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Remember, at this point in Mark's gospel, as we just said, the religious leaders sustained resistance. The religious leaders' sustained resistance has turned into solid rejection. Not only of the prophets, but ultimately of the Son of God incarnate right in front of them. And the rejection of the Son means they will not only have the kingdom of God taken away from them and given to a people producing its fruits, which is what you see in Matthew's version of this, where Jesus specifically says, guys, the kingdom of God is being taken away from you. It is going to go to someone else. But we also see that the rejection of the Son means that they will also be rejected by the Father. And because this is true... They need to know that there is tremendous peril in remaining in opposition to Christ. They need to know that there will come a day when it is too late and all that will remain is the severity of God. This is why Jesus seeks to expose their calcified hearts with the word of God. You see what he does right on the heels of verse 9, exposing them to the severity of God. He goes right to the word of God and he brings it to them because the word of God is the power of God to expose the hearts of men who need to repent and believe. And so he turns them right to the word of God. He says, have you not read this scripture, Jesus says? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What is Jesus doing when he goes into Psalm 118 and just pulls it forward and gives it to these religious leaders? He's just simply using a different word picture from the word of God to teach the exact same truth that he was giving in the parable. He is calling these religious leaders to see that he is this messianic cornerstone of whom the psalm is talking about. And by God's design, he is the one who holds everything together. By God's design, he is the essential access point into God's presence. This is God's way, and there's going to be no other way. He is the stone, the stone upon whom we will bow in submission and come in conformity to, or the stone upon whom we will be crushed by. But notice that in the end, what do these religious leaders do? What do they do? They look right at Jesus and they go, don't want it. So here's the word of God incarnate preaching the word of God itself to these people. They look right at him and go, no thanks. They just flat out fail to repent. Exposed by the beloved son, exposed by the word of God, exposed by the certain judgment to come, they choose to respond in fear. As verse 12 tells us, they walk away going, we got to get rid of this dude. We need to arrest him. We need to destroy him. We need to kill him. You see, when God's word searches out our motives and exposes our hearts, two reactions are possible. 
Two reactions are possible, at least. One reaction is that we may see ourselves as we really are, repent of our sin, and turn to Jesus, the cornerstone. Right, so someone comes into our world, whether it's a preacher, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a friend, whether it's a disciple or a counselor, whatever it is, this person comes to us and the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, lands into the heart of the people of God and it exposes us, it searches out our motivations, it shows us the realities, those dark corners of our heart and what we see is that in the exposing of our hearts as Christ empowers his word, we go, man, like I really need Jesus. It doesn't cause us to run from Christ, but what it does is it actually causes us to flee to him because the exposing has exposed how desperately bad we need him. So we repent of that sin, whatever it was, and then we flee to Christ seeing, I need him. I'm turning to Jesus. I'm clinging to the cornerstone. I'm weak. I need his patience. I need his kindness. I need his grace. But another kind of response is possible as well to the exact same scenario. Where somebody comes into our world, pastor, teacher, counselor, friend, discipler, neighbor, coworker, and they begin to just interact with us, exposing us to the word of God. But instead of repenting and turning to Jesus, the exact same actions cause us to harden our hearts against that person who came to us exposing our need. And we resolve to get rid of their influence because I don't like the way that they are exposing and searching my heart with the word of God. You see, this was the pathway of the religious leaders, wasn't it? They had some pretty insidious motivations in their heart that needed to be exposed by the word of God. Jesus, the messenger of God, comes and exposes the motivations of their heart with the word of God, but what do they do? Their heart hardens. I don't want this influence. You can kindly leave, and I'm going to make sure it never comes back by killing you. That's the pathway that the religious leaders took, and unfortunately, it is far too often the pathway that many of us take. You see, whether it's pride whether it's self-sufficiency or maybe just a little bit of both, we have all been in this place where we think, you know what, I just don't know that I need others speaking into my life. I, I don't know that I really need people to know what's going on in my world. I don't know that I need the motives of my heart searched out by a messenger of God, nor am I sure that I really want my heart to be exposed by the word of God. And honestly, the more I think about this, I'm quite confident that I'm just good on my own. But the danger is that when we think and act in this way, like the religious leaders, we fail to embrace the patient kindness of God who continues to send servants, who continues to send messengers to you and to me, reminding of us of our need for him. Now, these servants might be a preacher, might be a teacher, might be a spouse, a friend, church member who reminds us to live for Christ. It could be a counselor. It could be a discipler who encourages us to seek 
our ultimate joy and strength in God and His grace. But no matter who, no matter when, no matter where, the question is this, when God's messenger is sent to you, how do you respond? When God's messenger is sent to you, how do you respond? Option one, open arm embrace. Option two, where you seek to silence the voice of God in them. And what I want to do is remind you of this, is that question, when God's messenger is sent, how do you respond what I am not issuing to you is a call to pull yourself up by your bootstraps to turn and just start making better decisions for Jesus. I'm not doing that. If you ever hear me do that, punch me in the face and fire me. Okay? Get rid of me. That's insane. That's law. That's legalism. That's a monstrosity. That's not the good news of the gospel. So please don't hear me when I'm challenging you on this. How are you responding to the messengers of God in your life? And you might go, well, you know, I'm maybe not responding as well as I possibly could because I know these people of God in my life who are challenging me in certain ways, but I just keep bristling up and bristling up. So don't hear me say, hey, bro, stop bristling up and get your act together. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is I'm calling you to turn to the one who ultimately bore the severity of God's judgment against sin in our place. So do you see how the kindness and the severity of God mix together? Because the kindness and the severity of God mix together at a place called the cross. Because God sent his son to die for sinners like me and you. And his kindness towards sinners like me and his kindness towards sinners like you means that the severity of God doesn't get brushed under the rug as though the severity of God never exists. The severity of God got poured out in the full-blown, white-hot, wrathful judgment of God upon His Son on the cross. And so now, because the Son has received the severity of our judgment for our sin, we can look to Him and go, that is kindness, unimaginable, unfathomable. It blows my mind. Lord Jesus, by your power in me, help me to walk in such a way to where I'm looking to you, fueled by you, being led along by you, keeping in step with you, so that when I find myself over in this corner of the world where I'm just a little out of step with you, sin is rearing itself in my life, and the messenger of God comes along and says, brother or sister, I love you. Let us look to the kindness and severity of God on the cross. Our hearts don't bristle saying, get away, messenger, but we embrace God's kindness through our messenger who's calling us to look to the cross. See, that's the good news of the cross. The kindness and the severity of God meet in the Son, crucified, and resurrected God's glory, our good. So don't hear me telling you, get your act together, get out there and get at it, guys. Monday morning's coming. We need Jesus' team to be on, on its A game. But we do need is a mass of people who walk out of these doors and go, oh, Lord, Monday's coming. <laughs> and if anything is manifestly evident, is I really need. I really need Jesus. 
So here this morning, not the call to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but here this morning, the call to turn to Jesus. It's the call to turn to Jesus. Let's pray. The kindness, the severity of you, Father. These are attributes that define and describe you. We also know that you are the the Holy One of Israel. Holy, 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 holy. And your holiness isn't void of kindness and your holiness is not void of severity. To be quite honest, this sermon has just challenged me to grow in my understanding and to sort of really even articulate, or even now in this prayer, I'm rather quite thankful for the for the kindness and the severity of God. And the way that it was poured out and met on Him who is the Son, because what I know is this, is that one day, if it weren't for the Son, I'd have to stand before this holy God and face the severity of God myself, and that is a surefire way to be eternally condemned and separated from my Creator. So God, I'm asking just for this simple simple request that you would hear this prayer and see fit to answer it. Would you cause the hearts of the men and women here in this church to grow in love with the kindness and severity of the Father? Would you please do this? It is so beyond me. It is impossible to do. I cannot make it happen. But God, you can make it happen because I'm asking for this so that as we grow more in love with the kindness and severity of God, that our hearts would be turned to the Savior, our need for Him every hour, every day, every season, no matter what may come. God, help us in these things. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.